0: From Movendi International, I am Mike Dunbier. This is the Alcohol Issues Podcast. It's Saturday, September 5th, 2020. Welcome to the very first episode of the Alcohol Issues Podcast, our weekly conversation about the latest alcohol issues and policy, and science, and new alcohol industry revelations. Every episode, we are also bringing you an in-depth conversation about alcohol issues of global importance. For the very first podcast episode, I've sat down with Dag Rekve, the senior technical officer at the World Health Organization in Geneva, working on alcohol, drugs and addictive behaviors. We had a far-ranging conversation about the global alcohol burden, the developments or lack thereof in alcohol policy making in the last 10 years and an exciting outlook for the future. As governments decided this year to call alcohol harm a public health priority and to urge accelerated action, I met with Dag Reykve to explore these topics. Uh, hello everyone. We are here with uh, Dag Rekve, the senior technical officer at the WHO headquarters in Geneva and working in the unit on uh, alcohol, drugs and addictive behaviours. Dark, thank you so much for taking time and talking with me today.
1: Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here with you, Mike, and with uh, Movendi. Thank you.
0: And uh, of course, um, our topic today is um, the global burden of alcohol and um, uh, solutions and uh, uh, things that we, that you see can be done, have not been done. So we have uh, uh, lots of questions prepared, but I wanted to start by asking you, what does it mean that you work in the unit on alcohol, drugs and addictive behaviors, and that you are the uh, senior tech technical officer could you give us some insights please
1: yeah thank you very much mike Uh, as you know the world health organization is the body in the un system which is responsible for directing and coordinating health Uh, and we work with 194 member states um, across six regions of the world uh, and from more than 100 50 offices around the world. Uh, so I think it's important to keep in mind what WHO is, is. And uh, we work towards a world in which all people can attain the highest possible standard of health and well-being. So that's the way, uh, that's our ultimate goal. And uh, the way we are doing it is through some core functions. We provide leadership on matters critical to health and we shape the research agenda. Uh, we are setting norms and standards and promote, not the least to promote and monitor the implementation. And we also uh, develop and articulate ethical and evidence-based policy options. In, and we provide technical support. And finally, we monitor the health situation and report on the health situation around the world. Uh, so I think that is the perspective uh, when you ask me what I, I do. Huh? Uh, and we have this slogan that we promote health, we keep the world safe, and we serve the vulnerable. Uh, and I think it's also important to. Some of you probably know the long history of uh, WHO, and clearly in the last years there's been a clear shift in the organisation uh, towards more focus on so-called non-communicable diseases and conditions, uh, heart diseases, diabetes, uh, cancer, uh, but also injuries and violence, um, uh, and uh, and also a much more focus on the social and commercial determinants of health and finally we also are shifting the organization to have much more impact directly at country level uh and it's interesting because uh and uh, the um it is a dual track because on the one side we have more focus on non communicable diseases but on the other hand when we want to have more impact at country level and we've had uh, big health emergencies like uh uh h1n1 uh, ebola and not to least to mention covid-19 it is a kind also more focus on communicable diseases uh, but at the same time it's a clearly a much more focused approach now to look at both non communicable diseases and communicable diseases and not being uh, focusing uh, on only one of them but working in tandem uh, towards uh, reducing the health burden. And I am then a senior technical officer in the unit on alcohol, drugs, and addictive behaviors. That means that our unit are working both on issues related to alcohol, uh, but also to psychoactive drugs, uh, especially on the treatment side, uh, because we have UNODC who is working much more on the control side. Uh, and then uh, a new uh, issue that has emerged uh, in the last years is addictive behaviors like gambling and gaming which is now, uh, and especially gaming, is considerably concerned around the world uh, with an increasing use of gaming, online gaming. And, and we try also to work with those issues, both from a prevention side and from a, a, a treatment side. And, uh, and, and, and my main work as a senior technical officer is first and foremost to implement the global strategy to reduce the use of alcohol by by, uh, providing support to countries by uh, um, developing and uh, together with colleagues, evidence-based measures and promote them, but also to develop, uh, uh, we have a publication every three, four years, which we call the Global Status Report on Alcohol and Health, which really outlines the alcohol consumption, the health consequences, and the policy responses in the world. So that is mainly uh, what I'm working
0: on. This is a quite impressive list um, of things that uh, you are doing and that you and WHO are uh, working with. I wanted to ask, um, jokingly, what are you doing uh, in the afternoon? And I think these issues, Doug, that you are uh, mentioning here, the psychoactive drugs, uh, the addictive behaviors, uh, that is also part of your work, um, that would be interesting to discuss in, in another podcast as well because we are dealing with those issues too. But um, I think you have already touched upon the things that we want to focus on uh, today, the leadership of WHO and the norm setting work of WHO when it comes to um, addressing the global alcohol burden. And so you have mentioned um, uh, the focus on implementing the uh, global alcohol strategy and also the status reports. So I'm really um, interested in getting into this. And so uh, the first question would be then, Now it's 2020, Doug, and that means it's uh, 10 years since the adoption of the global alcohol strategy that you've already mentioned. So if you uh, could uh, take a look back, what did it mean for alcohol policy development that the global alcohol strategy was adopted 10 years ago? What did it mean for member states and for the World Health Organization? Um, And what's the significance uh, of the global alcohol strategy?
1: Uh, Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, Of course, it's always difficult to evaluate the impact of an instrument that is uh, non-binding and and so-called soft and doesn't come with hard-cut, clear recommendations in itself. And I think the best way to start uh, discussing the impact of the global strategy is to first look at what happened before the global strategy and what was the status uh, of alcohol in the World Health Organization and in the world before the global strategy. And uh, it was very interesting because uh, uh, the World Health Report in 2002 at that time ranked alcohol uh, as the fifth leading risk factor in the world. uh, for diseases and disabilities. And and then people start, started asking, so if uh, WHO ranks alcohol as the fifth leading risk factor, what is de facto WHO doing? And uh, it was a very difficult question to answer on one hand, but it was easy because not much happened, unfortunately. It was only in the European region which had had a concerted action since 1985, because in 1985 was the last time that alcohol was uh, on the agenda of the governing bodies of WHO. So since 1985, alcohol had never directly been discussed in the governing bodies, that is among our member states in the leading health agency in the world. So uh, that means that uh, uh, nothing had happened in almost 20 years uh, concerted. So then some countries picked up and said, we need to start doing something. And they started building up a momentum and got alcohol on the governing bodies in 2005. Uh, it, but it was a big battle. The, the person, the chairman of the so-called executive board in WHO at that time, in the worst moment, said that alcohol is really a tricky liquid because it was so difficult to unite the world. Representatives in one direction on alcohol because you had everything from total ban countries uh, to countries who were huge uh, producers themselves. Uh, and uh, so this was a huge, huge spread in opinions. And you had also the historical uh, fact of alcohol that it's not only about health, it's very much linked uh, um, uh, to religion. It's, it's linked to, to other issues that are not directly health-related. And, so and so there are many, many difficulties around alcohol. But the world were able to unite on a resolution, uh, but still very little happened. And in fact, from the period of 2005 to 2010, when the alcohol strategy was endorsed, it was a big effort to try to unite the world in one direction. So I think the global strategy in itself the fact that we you were you were able to unite the world, all the 193 at that time member states, that this is the direction we should go as a world uh, to reduce alcohol-related harm. That was the biggest impact. So in fact, the biggest impact happened by endorsing the global strategy. And we shouldn't forget that that it was acknowledged that alcohol was a huge uh, problem uh, for for health and well-being in the world. It was a huge problem, not only for the drinker, but for other people than the drinker and something much more concerted needed to happen. So, uh, so that is my first evaluation of the strategy. It itself was a huge success that it was able to unite. Then what happened after the global study? I think on the, on the global level, uh, if we keep that, we had the so-called NCD track and alcohol became fully integrated in, in the work to reduce non-communicable diseases. And alcohol also became uh, integrated in one of the health targets in the sustainable development goals, together with uh, uh, psychoactive drugs. So, so clearly at the global level, there had been a much higher awareness uh, since pre-global strategy period uh, on alcohol. So, so no doubt that it has had an impact at the global environment, the global health uh, governance. Uh, alcohol is now present in all these questions. It's difficult to avoid alcohol. When we are discussing crucial health issues in the world. So so that has clearly, and whether it's the global strategy itself or all the mobilization, we don't know, but at least now it's difficult to avoid alcohol. Before the alcohol strategy came, it was easy or much more easy to avoid discussing alcohol when you discussed issues where alcohol was clearly part of. So I think that is the hugest success, the biggest success of the global strategy. Then is the question: So, what has it mattered on the ground? What has it mattered for people's lives? Have it made any change? And I think there it's much more difficult to estimate uh, the the effect of the strategy itself. And I think it's still a continuous work. Uh, and it is happening things uh, globally. I think the COVID has of course changed the environment completely. But but we see that many countries are struggling, are wanting to do something. But there are hindrances, there are bottlenecks, there are uh, instant, uh, uh, to implement the most effective strategies. So, so I think it's a mixed picture when it comes to measuring the success of the global strategy. But, but if you look at the period before the strategy, I think it has been a fairly
0: high, a big success. And I think it's an important point that you are making that um, the strategy united the countries. Um, I think it's quite remarkable to hear that since 1985. Um, alcohol with the burden it causes globally has not been on the agenda of the uh, governing bodies of the world health organization so i can i can clearly see that this is a big achievement then as uh, you said it's a tricky fluid it's a tricky substance and i just wanted to highlight that you said that the global alcohol strategy um, was instrumental in ensuring that alcohol is now also included in the Sustainable Development Goals and before that in the NCD's Global Action Plan. And so you have mentioned already this uh, the burden of alcohol, um, alcohol's harm to others, alcohol's health harm uh, that many regions and many countries are struggling with. So I wanted to ask you, Doug, um Based on what you look at the global status report that you're working with, um, what is it that you see in terms of uh, harm? What is the alcohol burden? Well, uh,
1: it's it's a complex burden. And, and I think we have to start with the basics. And some people don't like to hear this, but alcohol is a toxic substance. It's a psychoactive substance, and it's a substance with dependence-producing propensities. Uh, and these three elements, in fact, makes alcohol stand out um, uh, from many of the other psychoactive substances, because alcohol scores high on the toxicity, on the psychoactive component, and on the dependence-producing component of it. So, uh, so that's why alcohol is an extremely important issue to look at as a psychoactive substance. Uh, And not only look at the toxicity or the intoxication or the dependence, but look at all three together and see how they they together produce the the huge burden from alcohol. And not only for the body itself, for cancers, for cardiovascular diseases, for the liver and digestive uh, system, uh, but also, in fact, uh, more and more which, uh, research has shown the link between alcohol and communicable diseases, like especially TB, but also HIV, so, though it's a little bit more complex. Uh, uh, and finally, not to mention all the social consequences of alcohol consumption, both to the drinker and especially to the people around the drinker. So this ma- makes alcohol a very, very uh, important uh factor, risk factor to look at from a broad perspective, not from a single perspective. And that is easy, easy to forget in all the discussions around alcohol and, and, and also the fact that it seems to be that people can drink alcohol uh, in fairly small doses with not any specific impact at that individual session or in a life course, if you keep it to a very low level. Uh, So clearly it has to do with uh, both uh, the context, the frequency and the amount. Uh, So that is also another factor here and which makes it difficult because people sometimes can't identify themselves as a drinker with the problem because they are not the problem drinker. (laughs) Though we have the historical uh, saying that uh, a person with alcohol problems is a person who drinks more than his doctor and the relativity of having problems and alcohol problems. So so that is, of course, an aspect which makes it very, very different. And, of course, the issue around illicit and surrogate alcohol, which sometimes is used as a scapegoat for for putting in place evidence-based measures, but but also, in fact, has a, 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 a value in itself to look at, because it creates a lot of problems, both the surrogate alcohol and the... Illegal alcohol. So, so, so it's a duality again there, uh, uh, and uh, I, 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 and that is and so and finally, I think the issue with uh, that having to address both the short term and the long term effects of alcohol. We need to firmly establish that there's not possible to develop a, a threshold for low low risk drinking. You can do low risk drinking with low risks, but we can't say that there is anything. Like safe drinking or safe drinking environments, or uh, and saying using anything that try to avoid or diminish or, uh, or, or uh, um, neglect the risk by drinking itself. And when you zoom up everything and you look at it all, uh, alcohol is co- consumption is uh, responsible for almost uh, around 3 million deaths each year glo- uh, globally. Uh, and it accounts for around five, 5.1% of the disease burden. So it's a huge risk factor for, for, for the global burden of disease. And it's linked to my, so many conditions. Uh, more than 200 uh, codes in ICD-10 uh, or now ICD-11 is detrimentally linked to, to, to alcohol consumption. A few codes is linked to uh, beneficial effects. Of alcohol and the discrepancy also in the focus on on the uh, on the beneficial effects versus the detrimental effects is also uh, very illustrative of this uh, uh, incredible duality that we are struggling with when it comes to alcohol. I don't think any other risk factor or any other um, issue it has detrimental consequences for health would get blown up some beneficial effects in the way that alcohol is doing. And for us who works with this, it's always uh, amazing and almost incredible to see that health professionals, my colleagues, are blowing up the beneficial effects to proportions which are not defendable in a public health view. And that, I must say, is really, really making me very, very sad and irritated. And I need just to express that. As public health people, we should really look at the the detrimental effects. That's our obligation, that is what we are here for, and that is what we need to work on. Not blowing up the beneficial or potential beneficial effects out of proportions, and for our own satisfaction or for someone else's satisfaction. That is really, really something that annoys me. Now I've said that. Uh, so, uh, I think I'll stop there, but we need to do something with this huge
0: and on. Uh, on this point that uh, you are talking about this long list of um, health conditions that alcohol is related to, um, I think you mentioned cancer and cardiovascular disease. I think those two stand out, but you also mentioned tuberculosis and HIV AIDS. And we are right now in a global pandemic. Uh, I think uh, COVID-19 is a res- respiratory disease um, as well. So I think you mentioned a number of interesting points and I wanted to ask you, um, In ma- a few years ago, the British Medical Journal, uh, they published an editorial um, under the headline saying um, that the health benefits or the evidence for the health benefits of alcohol um, is evaporating. Uh, so a few years later, you mentioned now this uh, that there are myths about alcohols, uh, Uh, positive effects for the heart and uh, that this is uh, crowding out the awareness that alcohol causes cancer. Could you just update uh, us, please, where are we in terms of uh, the the key facts that people should know about um, um, in terms of alcohol harm and that people should know uh, to put into context uh, the myths about uh, alcohol's health benefits?
1: Well, I think, again, back to the fact that uh, we have to start with, uh, with the core. And the core is that alcohol is toxic. It is psychoactive and it is, has dependence-producing propensities. And then, of course, there are huge differences between different individuals. So the so-called risk curve uh, may differ hugely, not only from person, to person, but also from gender and age and, and, and all these things. So, so that is the starting point. And then evidence is accumulating uh, on more and more on the detrimental effects. And especially, of course, the cancer risks. That's something which is now firmly established by the uh, IAC, the International Agency for Cancer Research. And several cancer types are directly, uh, uh, um, alcohol is directly causal for several cancer types. And all the other uh, diseases uh, on the body that we know about, uh, it's firmly established. When it comes to the health benefits, I think uh, this is a battle that uh, we neither can win nor we can lose. I think it's a wrong perspective in itself. It's an interesting perspective, so I think it deserves its research. Uh, but then we have everything about the knowledge translation. And uh, Knowledge translation is a kind of key word. So what do we do with the knowledge that we have about something? And I think it's not about what we know about uh, the beneficial effects, because I think that that will continue. There will become new research, which will then highlight the beneficial effects and perhaps even for more diseases they will try to find and they will find that uh, there's plausible links, there are potential links, and there are stronger evidence about links, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is a battle that will continue. So we cannot stop it. We can't stop knowledge uh, research, knowledge search, and search for what are uh, effects of things. So I think we should more shift our focus to the knowledge translation. So what is happening with the knowledge we have about the potential health benefits, and I think there. That is where we have to put in the emphasis and we have to focus on, on the context. We have to focus on the entirety of alcohol as a risk factor and not, uh, not uh, reduce it to single diseases or single uh, consequences. But keep in mind the overall impact and especially on uh, the equity element of these issues. And... Uh, uh, so so, so that is why I think uh, we need to shift the focus and not try to win the battle whether there are health benefits or not. I think we need to put it in context and we need to ne- translate the knowledge into the action that is needed more. Um, so that I think is the future for us.
0: In the beginning you mentioned that um, in WHO you work with 194 member states in six regions um, across the world. and. Uh, to this point that you are making now that it's so important to address the entirety of alcohol as a health risk factor and obstacle to development. I just wanted to ask you, do you have some key facts or some some key issues that you highlight when you are uh, working with these countries um, that that you think stand out well or explain the the problem in, in a very clear way?
1: well if i knew that i would probably uh, it would have been an easy battle but uh, there is no simple simple there's not a panagraha there's no there's no simple solutions it's very difficult it's there's so many i think barriers uh, towards action uh, which makes even compelling evidence uh, being uh, refuted uh, if there are uh, vicarious arguments behind uh, or conflicting interests uh, that don't want to implement the evidence-based measures. Uh, So that's why we have a difficult uh, issue to to explain it to to governments, to to explain uh, that this is something that we need to do. uh, Because we are only one factor in when a government is deciding and and I think uh, we need to more work on how can we together build a case uh, which makes it impossible for governments and for many governments, it is impossible not to work with alcohol, but for many more governments it's very easy to avoid alcohol to still uh, push it under a carpet so So we have to find a strategy and, and i don't and we don't have the solution yet it is a, probably there are two ways one is to to do hardcore advocacy and and try to shout at governments, and the other is to then constantly build up the evidence base, the technical assistance and the and the available tools and, and just continue, uh, you know, working and working and working. Because also when you look at the history of alcohol consumption and the problems associated with it and the policy responses, it's again, this duality. Either it becomes a single issue and it's very much ideologically driven uh, and to either do uh, complex Complete ban or get it uh, eradicate alcohol, or then being completely succumbed by by commercial and liberal liberal trends and say that it's the individual's choice and we just need to uh, work with the individual's choice and, and and but it should be possible for everyone to drink and then then we just need to have that as a starting point. So that is the dilemma that uh, the world is so widely different and the issue is uh, at hand is so difficult and uh, ideologically driven that we need again to come back to the public health base for alcohol consumption and alcohol issues and alcohol-related problems, which is difficult because the ideologically part of alcohol uh, movement has been so important in in putting in place evidence-based measures. So I think we shouldn't forget them or say that the ideological part of those that are really concerned with alcohol should not be something we are stimulating. But at the same time, we need to be aware that governments have so many competing interests now and, and, and we need to find the right way and the right way for governments to, to work to reduce alcohol consumption and alcohol-related harm. So, so again, there's no simple solution. We just have to continue on the path that we are doing. And, and we won't solve the problem in the short term or the long term, but we can have considerable achievements if we find the
0: right way and we work together. When you analyze the situation with the implementation of the global alcohol strategy, you talked about um, some of the uh, big improvements that have happened, uh, both in terms of the momentum of the strategy and the unification of the uh, countries around the world, but you also mentioned that in the communities, the work in the last 10 years on alcohol prevention and control maybe has not had the impact Um, that uh, everybody would have wished for when the strategy was adopted in 2010. Now you have also mentioned barriers to alcohol policy implementation and I think the different um, aspects of it that some countries really want to lead on alcohol uh, control and other countries um, are uh, much more cautious about this. And so I just wanted to ask you, Doug, can you see that the interest is increasing from from countries that are reaching out to WHO? And can you also see success stories in terms of implementing the alcohol policy best buys and the global alcohol strategy?
1: From my perspective and my standpoint, we, we really see that many more countries now work and try to work or try to do something uh, to reduce alcohol-related harm uh, uh, globally and in the country. And also at the municipal level, we shouldn't forget all the different levels. Huh? Uh, the municipalities have many competences in, in many countries when it comes to alcohol uh, consumption and alcohol-related harm, too, m- often through licensing systems or, or uh, social services or treatment systems or, or and even uh, on marketing. Uh, so we shouldn't forget the city level, the local level, and the, of course in federal states, the regional level, and then uh, and the country level itself. Um, one of the main problems we have in reducing alcohol-related harm is that those measures that really have an impact, those measures that really uh, change the situation in the country, is very often outside of the control of the health sector. Uh, and it links directly into uh, commercial interests and and, uh, and, uh, and the revenues of governments and it is taxation it is uh, reducing the availability the physical availability of alcohol it's reducing marketing and it's to work with road safety and those issues are often, almost all in all countries outside of the health sector itself and in addition, we have good evidence for so called screening and brief intervention that is to discover Problem drinking at an early stage and coming in and do some short uh, short interventions to try to change the the, the drinking at uh, for the person uh, so I think that's the starting point is that the health sector has to is the key advocate for issues that are outside of the health sector we're already there we have some problems. Uh, uh, but but there are ways around it, and especially the taxation. And <laughs> we have seen now in COVID that certainly taxation is becoming a, a. We have gotten a lot of new fans for alcohol taxation because alcohol taxation, by far, is probably the the. Excise uh, tax uh, that creates the most revenues for countries and and the revenues are needed in this phase that we are in now uh but just coming uh, shortly back to successes, yes we have had many many successes at, uh, at even at city level and, and up to to national level and in in different regions there have been movements in regions also. but and I think it's difficult when we talk about the success story, not to talk about russia and and what has happened in Russia the last uh, twenty five years and and of course it cannot be directly linked only to the global strategy, but it shows what happens in a country when the problems just becomes too big eh? because russia historically is one of the heaviest drinking countries in the world eh? but now they stand out as an example of how a long term strategy using very stringent policy reforms can reverse devastating um, effects on alcohol. Because in the early 1990s, uh, alcohol consumption was extremely high. And after the dissolvement of the Soviet Union and the liberalization of the markets, alcohol consumption really skyrocketed. I I think they had around 20 liters of per capita alcohol consumption in in around the turn of the the century. and that, by far, the highest in the world, perhaps, uh, appeared by a couple of countries. Half of all deaths in working-age men uh, was uh, was almost uh, was linked to uh, drinking, yeah? and uh, and, or, and so many consequences for the society. Uh, so they had to do something. And from 2005, they really started concerted efforts, working with market jurisdictions. Uh, sales and taxation and, uh, and as a result uh, in russia with this concerted focus on the evidence-based measures consumption dropped uh, now i think it's around 11 12 uh, 12 liters depending 13 depending on how much we what we count <laughs> and how we count it. but there's a considerable drop and also not only a considerable drop in alcohol consumption but the Drop in alcohol-related mortality and morbidity, injuries, psychosis, uh, need for treatment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this success has been achieved by measures targeting price, availability, and marketing of alcohol and drink-driving measures. And so, so, so of course, Russia is sta- still not—they're uh, uh, far from teetotal. They have a really bad drinking culture. But I think the example of Russia and the measures that we implemented, especially the last 10 years, really shows that it is possible if you have concerted and committed action and from highest level of government, and also that this is done through the governmental systems. So it shows, I think the Russia case shows that it is possible, but we need commitment. We need strong commitment in all levels. Of course, Russia as a top-down society is more easy to get streamlined uh, than other countries. So I think uh, the lesson we really need to learn is that, yes, everyone at all levels need to contribute and commit and do something if you want to achieve something in a society.
0: Now we have discussed also success stories, and I think you have highlighted a number of important lessons that you have uh, learned from Russia and, and other countries. And in this context, I wanted to ask uh, one more, it's 2020 uh, question. So, of course, it's 2020 now, and we are already five years into the uh, Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals. We see some countries that improve um, on their development, like you mentioned Russia. And you mentioned earlier that alcohol is is included in the um, Agenda 2030. So... I wanted to ask what do we know about the connection between alcohol and development, alcohol and the SDGs more broadly, and uh, is WHO together with countries doing anything in particular to address SDGs that are affected by alcohol and to promote development through the alcohol policy solutions?
1: Yeah, uh, thank you for the question. Of course, the SDGs and the SDG agenda is a huge agenda. It inflicts in all levels of society, horizontally and, and, and vertically, vertically, if we want to use those expressions. And I think the same goes for alcohol. Uh, in fact, alcohol, uh, when you look horizontally and vertically, uh, if you look vertically on the health goal, it inflicts on all the basically almost all the health targets in a way or another, some more than others, especially NCDs and injuries, but also communicable diseases and maternal health. And There are so many areas where alcohol affects the target, but also horizontally to all the 17 goals, alcohol is in one way or another, to lesser or bigger degree, involved in all the 17. And some of them we can say, well, we need to really (laughs) work hard to make it an important part of the goal. And others, it's evident and over-evident. And I think, especially when it comes to uh, inequities Uh, i think that is uh, it's a missing link for the world many many are now focusing on inequities and many are afraid of inequities because after covid19 inequities have really even skyrocketed even more but inequities is, is is a key issue when it comes to alcohol because again because people who are fairly wealthy healthy in a good context can drink alcohol without any clear obvious immediate or long term negative consequences and many cannot do that and that is driven by inequities so so i think this issue and that is an old argument in alcohol and alcohol related harm that is the solidarity the solid, solidarity so so i think if, uh, in the sustainable development goals i think especially uh, because it's so easy to say that you are not part of the problem and you are a drinker. Nobody wants to be part of the problem. So many drinkers don't perceive themselves as part of the problem, even though they are. So I think to be lifting up the issue that alcohol affects inequities and affects people's uh, possibilities to grow and mature and rise up in society uh, not only only individuals, but also cultures. I think that is one of the main aspects with the Sustainable Development Goals and highlight the, the real link between alcohol in a, in a, and in uh, uh, I think also uh, one that we haven't really focused too much on in, in, a, in a way is the Goal 17. And I think we need to find the Goal 17 and work with Goal 17 in the right way, to find the ra- right frame. And that is about partnerships to achieve the goal. Because, yes, everyone has uh, not only a right but an obligation to participate to reduce alcohol-related harm in the world. And that's why partnerships are so so important. But at the same time, Goal 17 has created a platform uh, for commercial interests to be part of the solution only and to avoid being seen as part of the problem. And I think we need really to work with Goal 17, to find the right way for how, uh, uh, especially commercial, vested interests can come commit and contribute, but at the same time not escaping the 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 light, not escaping that they are also part of the problem, and not escaping the fact that the most cost-effective intervention will hurt their businesses so so i think goal 17 is a key issue for for success when it comes to alcohol and for uh, the sustainable development goals in that regard uh and 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 of course all the other goals uh, and and again especially i would highlight because we often forget it and that is goal 16 peace and justice and strong institutions and, and again the links between violence and especially intimate partnership violence and violence on the streets and and, and, and disorder, uh, and in fact, also now through COVID-19, we have seen this now, uh, where many youth are not are are uh, just disregarding all the uh, uh, ordinances and regulations because they want to have the right to party, and then they go partying, and then they get uh, infected, and they are asymptomatic, and they go home. Uh, perhaps they then their parents and even their grandparents get sick. Or at least this is a potential way. Uh, We don't have enough evidence, but we see that many countries are now starting to be afraid of that because young people, in in a way, know, again, this low risk, that they are not at the highest risk. So they don't care and they don't bother. So they don't. But then what they do have consequences for others. And I think that is the point uh, that nobody drinks in isolation You are not by yourself in your drinking, but your drinking has consequences or might have consequences for others. You don't need to become abstinent, but you need to think about that alcohol is a social problem also, and the solutions is at the social level.
0: Yeah, and I think um, with these points that you highlight now, um, I have one final question to hopefully put this all together because there are so many uh, really interesting uh, dimensions and aspects that you have highlighted. So I think it's very good to discuss the different aspects of alcohol harm that go beyond uh, the health dimension. As you have mentioned, um, the the different SDGs, inequities, um, violence, uh, the role of the alcohol industry in fueling alcohol harm and uh, not really needing to take responsibility for uh, that um, as currently. And you have also talked um, a number of times during our conversation about the current global pandemic, the coronavirus crisis. So I wanted to ask you going back also to this point that you made that there are these uh, solidarity dimensions, uh, social justice issues about alcohol from your perspective and considering that we are now living um, in times of COVID-19 um, we have done so for almost half a year, what are the issues that uh, WHO is most concerned about uh, when it comes to the pandemic and alcohol harm and, and alcohol policy?
1: Well, it's a very difficult question because alcohol has not been in the forefront
0: uh, in the issues
1: around the how to uh, contain the the the, the 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 virus, and uh, there's a reason for that because we have not good enough evidence on the local lockdowns and and bans that has been introduced in many countries. We have a lot of indicative evidence, but we are really we have we could not come with good evidence-based recommendations to countries and especially to municipalities in a situation where, where on the one hand, alcohol clearly was part of an integrated part of the economy and banning alcohol would hurt the economy. On the other hand, we knew also that they clearly there were increased risks by continuing having alcohol present, especially in a parting culture environment. Uh, but at the same time, Uh, we need uh, to develop the evidence base for the direct link between an indirect link between alcohol and COVID-19 spread. So so that is why uh, it has been difficult. We we have given some advice and general advice, but at the same time, the countries themselves have uh, have a wide uh, range of approaches from declaring alcohol as an essential good to introduce a complete local ban or national ban on alcohol consumption. So I think it's, it's still difficult. Uh, and we are still in the early stages, but clearly, uh, and this is a huge natural experiment now, which will uh, increase the evidence base considerably if we do concerted the research of this huge natural ex- experiment. So I think, but that the, clearly it will change the, 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 con- the, the context of alcohol discussions. My final, final co- uh, comment is that our main challenge uh, will be to work on on, on, on our cognitive dissonance uh, around alcohol. Not only uh, those that are drinkers, but also non-drinkers. Uh, and, and, uh, and together find out how we can deal with the cognitive dissonance so we end up on the right side. And when I talk about cognitive dissonance, uh, this is that people always are, you know, people are not either this or that. It's always a... a a stream of values, perspectives, ideas inside every person. And sometimes uh, there are contradictory beliefs and ideas and perspectives inside a person. (laughs) And very often uh, when we come into this cognitive dissonance, we look for escape because we we get stressed when we have this. Yes, on the one hand, we see that alcohol is harmful, but on the other side, I drink and I think that it is really nice. And especially for those that are decision-makers, it's they have an obligation to solve this cognitive dissonance. And unfortunately, it has been far too easy to solve this dissonance for decision-makers by, uh, by then just pushing alcohol under the carpet. And I think that is what we need. To, to We need to increase the leverage of the need to do something so that the need becomes so big that the, the, we end up on the right side of the dissonance of peoples, of societies and of, com, of governments and of the United Nations.
0: And I think on this point, um, there are many trends that I think go towards this point that you are making where... Uh, people are reflecting about uh, alcohol harm in the communities, uh, their own alcohol consumption. We can see uh, a youth generation that is increasingly choosing to uh, stay alcohol free longer or to reduce their alcohol consumption a little bit. So there might changes be coming from uh, the community. And as you said, uh, WHO is getting requests from member states uh, for technical support. So hopefully we can build on those uh, trends then to address this global burden in in the next 10 years.
1: Yeah, I think it's unavoidable. And we are now working here in Geneva to develop a global action plan to reduce the harmful use of alcohol following the the global strategy. Uh, And this is really the, I think this is the, the place now that we have to put in all our efforts to try to get a good action plan. I know many are disappointed, they want to have more legally binding instruments and more concerted actions, but before, because of all the complexities and issues I've mentioned, we have to keep in mind that we are 194 member states, we need to unite around the common approach, at least for now, and then we can build up other approaches later. But I think to have an action plan as a fundament for putting it all together, putting together what has happened at the global level the 10, last 10 years with the NCDs action plan and political declaration in the UN, the SDGs, our new knowledge about the link between alcohol and communicable diseases, inequities, the link with uh, COVID-19, and the issue that yes, you know, we need to continue finding the right way, and the action plan and uh, is really the place now that we need all good uh, hands on deck and work together to find a solution, get a good action plan, and start working on it. Uh, that is the main, my main task uh, to help and facilitate that happening. Uh, but we here in the World Health Organization in Geneva, we cannot do it alone. We need help, not the least from our regional offices, which are very autonomous here. We need help from the country level of WHO. We need help from governments, uh, in the process of formulating the action plan and endorsing the action plan and implementing the action plan, we need the industry and commercial determinants to work also in the right place uh, so that they can do uh, what they can do at best to reduce and not uh, create more harm for the action plan. And, but at least, not the least to mention, we need a strong and united. uh, civil society, and not only the uh, so-called risk-oriented, risk-factor-oriented civil society organizations working with alcohol, tobacco, road safety, etc., but we need horizontally across, and especially those that are working on diseases, on cardiovascular diseases, on cancer, we need those to really uh, put all the efforts together now to get a good action plan it's a it's a it's a written instrument it's words but th- those words can come to uh, into action if the words are good and now we need good words and we need help to do that
0: and uh, we wish you really uh, sincerely all the best and good luck. this is a monumental effort and that you are up to now and of course there is lots to gain as you have explained so. This is also very good that you highlighted the efforts going into the future now. And with this, I wanted to thank you, Doug. Thank you for taking time today to talk with us. This has been really insightful and really exciting, actually, to hear how you talk about the issues, how you frame the issues. And I think it's a a great start of our podcast series to just set... The context for what what it is that we will talk about, and you have mentioned so many interesting points that would be uh, worthwhile to follow up in future conversations. But for today, thank you very much, Doug.
1: Thank you very much, Mike. It's been a real pleasure to be with you here today to talk about this very important issue.
0: Here are the alcohol issues you need to know about this week. In terms of alcohol policy news, there are two connected stories that highlight both the burden of alcohol violence and the efficacy of alcohol policy solutions. In Sweden, a new report highlights again the massive and costly societal problem of alcohol violence, crime and other harms. Systembolaget, the government-run retail monopoly in Sweden, has released its alcohol Report 2020 with the theme alcohol and Violence. The report illustrates the societal cost of alcohol-related crimes, costing Swedish society almost 1 billion in 2017. The costs include the police, trials, investigations and prison care, where the largest proportion is about assault cases. The report also illustrates alcohol's adverse effects on people's sense of safety and freedom. For instance, 15% of adults say they had negative experiences as a result of the alcohol use of a family member or other close relative. Nearly 10% had negative experiences from a stranger's alcohol use in the past year. Alcohol harm to others also affects children. 15% of all children in Sweden, approximately 320,000, have been negatively affected by a parent's alcohol use. The total costs of alcohol's health, social and economic harm amount to 10 billion euro every year in Sweden. But alcohol violence has also been a pervasive problem in New Zealand, for instance affecting the nighttime economy. That is why the country reduced the national maximum trading hours ending 24-hour alcohol sales. For the on-trade, alcohol sales hours were limited to the time between 8 a.m. and 4 a.m. And the off-trade alcohol sale was limited to the time between 7 a.m. and 11 p.m. Analyst now shows that alcohol-related hospitalizations and violence declined since the improvement of the late-night alcohol sales regulations. The number of assault-related hospitalizations fell by 11%. The decline was largest among young people aged 15-19 to years with a decline of 18% and the number of assaults recorded by the police also fell. These stories illustrate key alcohol issues. Firstly, alcohol harm is pervasive, adversely affecting health, economy and social fabric, even affecting innocent children and limiting people's sense of safety and freedom and draining society's resources. Secondly, alcohol harm can be prevented and reduced. Alcohol policy solutions are available and even small changes to alcohol prices and alcohol availability have positive effects, for example, in increasing public safety. This week's alcohol issues in science are all about alcohol and COVID-19. A new, compelling research commentary, published in the scientific journal Alcohol and Drug Review, makes the scientific case for addressing alcohol harm in the context of the coronavirus crisis. The study by Stockwell, Andreasson, Cherpittel, Holder, Naimi and others is entitled The Burden of Alcohol on Healthcare During COVID-19. The study examines a set of special concerns regarding alcohol's role in the ongoing public health crisis. The researchers argue, based on latest evidence, that alcohol use poses special problems in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic, which have implications for public health and health care. These special problems are First, heavy alcohol use increases risk for severe lung infections and ensuing respiratory problems. Second, there are many reports of domestic violence spiking around the world as people are required to spend long hours together in their homes. Alcohol use increases the risk that interpersonal conflicts will result in violent behavior. Third, alcohol use in the home may also compromise children's welfare. Fourth, alcohol is a significant risk factor for depression and suicide, which may be more prevalent during this time of enforced social isolation. Fifth, being impaired with alcohol will make it harder for people to attend to basic precautions for avoiding infection, such as physical distancing, hand washing and not touching one's face. And last but not least, alcohol harm places a heavy burden on the healthcare system and emergency services. Globally, alcohol contributes to about 20% of injury and about 11.5% of non-injury emergency room presentations. So the scale of alcohol-related impacts on healthcare is substantial. In many countries, the alcohol burden on healthcare will be of similar extent or even bigger than the COVID-19 burden. Citing compelling evidence, the researchers show that government decisions to declare alcohol sales essential during COVID-19 lockdowns were flawed and counterproductive. In fact, they present an extensive case for restricting rather than enabling the supply of alcohol in the present crisis. The scientists recommend a set of five alcohol policy solutions with a focus on potential of raising alcohol taxation. There is a strong case for evidence based alcohol policies in the public interest. Such policies could reduce economic costs and minimize diversion of healthcare services. Higher alcohol taxes could provide much needed additional revenue for cash strapped governments. This week's alcohol issues in terms of alcohol industry revelations highlight how big alcohol is exploiting the crisis with an array of new strategies. The new set of business strategies we can reveal includes virtual events, influencer marketing, branching out, helping local bars and pubs as well as targeting children and youth. Big alcohol is using virtual events to promote brands and make sure people consume alcohol despite the current public health crisis. One example is AB InBev's virtual beer festival to mark International Beer Day. AB InBev used multiple social media channels including Facebook, YouTube, Instagram and Twitter to market this event and promote alcohol. The focus on social media puts children and youth in harm's way as they use these platforms most frequently. While influencer marketing took a hit in the beginning of the pandemic, Big alcohol has found a way to use lifestyle marketing during the COVID-19 crisis to promote alcohol through influencer messaging. For instance, a tequila brand runs a weekly YouTube series titled Who is making marks? The online event series puts celebrities behind the bar and asks them to share, make, and consume margaritas. During the virtual party, the celebrities interact with fans as they don't want to consume the tequila alone. This format makes a mockery of the slogan to consume alcohol responsibly. Big Alcohol seeks to boost their brand's desire to connect with homebound consumers during the pandemic leveraging, entertaining, multiple interactive engagement opportunities, like completing different challenges and encouragement to come back week after week to see a new celebrity host. Capitalizing on the accelerating online shopping trends during the pandemic, Bud Light, an AB InBev brand, launched a limited edition unisex streetwear line inspired by summer midwestern childhoods and american culture in partnership with daryl brown of midwest kids clothing the fashion line was promoted with the hashtag midwest Brood. the strategy behind investing in merchandise marketing is not only to promote brand image and brand loyalty but also to gain deeper insight into the consumer base which can then be used to refine marketing and increase brand consumption in the future. Another strategy of Big alcohol is to promote their brands under the guise of helping local businesses. For example, AB InBev collaborated with Tigor Pistol, a social ad platform in the United States. The aim was to get more people to local bar and restaurant partners. This partnership is, however, not so much about helping local bars and pubs as it is about self-interest in promoting AB InBev product sales in the beer giants global network of bars and pubs. Also, this initiative is about creating personal connections with people through local activations, a clear priority of the alcohol industry during the current pandemic. To read more about the unethical business practices of the alcohol industry, we have also added two new reports to the show notes. One report exposes alcohol industry practices in Latin America and the Caribbean and the other report exposes the failure of big alcohol in the United Kingdom to regulate itself in terms of labeling. All other stories are referenced in the show notes as well so that you can easily find the latest Science Digest and follow up on all alcohol policy stories we discuss today. The Alcohol Issues Podcast is made by Arin Pinho, Taraka Ranchigoda, Kristina Sperkova and Mike Dünbier. Our theme music is by LF Music. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast today. See you next week.